0: episode of the Atlas Society S. My name is Vicki Odino and I'm with the Atlas Society, the leading nonprofit organization introducing young people to the ideas of Ayn Rand in creative ways, such as through animated videos and graphic novels. Today we will be discussing current events with a panel consisting of our very own Atlas Society scholar, uh, economist Richard Salzman, and our founder David Kelly. We'll also save time at the end to take some audience questions, so throughout the discussion, please type your questions into the Zoom Q&A or the chat, or if you're watching us live on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, you can just type those into the content stream. Today we're going to cover three topics. First, the Afghanistan exit, second, the $3.5 trillion infrastructure plan, and third, the renter eviction moratorium. So thank you so much for joining us, and let's go ahead and get started with the first topic. I think we've all seen the images coming from Afghanistan, the pleas from those abandoned there, and also the response from the White House. So I'm going to go straight to the panel on this topic, and David, I'm going to start with you.
1: Okay, thanks, Vicki, and welcome, everyone. Um, Yes, I, I... I'm sure we've all been glued to the uh, news, uh, whatever sources we use, uh, watching the disaster that's been unfolding in Afghanistan over the last week and a half, um, when the Taliban managed to conquer uh, not only a great number of provincial capitals, but the, the, the <clears throat> three leading cities um, in, in Afghanistan and then Kabul itself. Um, it The latter case apparently without any opposition. And the scenes that we've seen on uh, the media are just awful, awful. You know, I I think from what I've read, there's no question that this was mismanaged by President Biden. He was warned about various things and uh, uh, by his own military. So I don't want to engage in hindsight bias here. That we should have seen this coming. This is an extreme case, uh, but you know, military and, and uh, foreign policy people do worst case scenarios, um, which should have included this. Um, however, I'm not, uh, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily opposed to withdrawal if it were done in a rational and safe way, if there is one. Um, and also, I'm not I'm not an expert in military foreign policy. So, um, but I do want to comment on some of the underlying um, philosophical issues. Um, let me start. I'm, I want to touch on three areas. One is a bit of history about Afghanistan and the Taliban. The second one is the role of pragmatism in the U.S. policy there, and uh, and finally, the issue of the reliance on principle. It's really the other half of the pragmatism issue. So to start with the history, um, Afghanistan only became an independent nation in 1921. Uh, It had, from 33 to 73, it had a monarchy, um, and it was, you know, it was a monarchy. It was not a, uh, you know, a a U.S.-like republic. But it was reasonably safe. They there was a lot of development. Um, the monarchs were reasonably good as monarchs. Um, they protected indig- uh, women's rights in particular. They attempted to do modern uh, modernizing of the economy, um, but then in the 70s a communist uh, an internal communist party took over, and then shortly after that the Soviet Union invaded in 1979. And they were opposed by the Mujahedin, um, who didn't like communism. And during the 80s, uh, we funded those people on, I guess, the assumption that the enemies of our enemy must be our friends, even though they were, you know, if anyone in that Reagan era who had more wit than, say Brent Snowcroft, and asked what do these people believe, what do they want, we should have been much more careful about funding them. Um, and not just have been
0: overwhelmed by trying to um, counter the communists. David, can you hear us? Looks like you've frozen. I wasn't sure if that was him or me
2: (laughs) no i could see it as well all
0: right richard why don't you
2: i can jump in until yeah yeah, until david comes back um david and i have been talking about the pragmatist element of it so when he comes back i'm i'm sure he'll elaborate on it as well as the history of it i I do remember reagan and others seeing the soviet union bogged down in afghanistan in the 80s and they got very excited about the idea that it actually might bring down and weaken the soviets and it actually did. Okay, David, you're back.
1: Okay, yeah, sorry. my um,
2: That's
1: okay. My computer uh, <clears throat> went south like some of the Afghan soldiers. Anyway, um, the um, but now let's talk a little bit about the Taliban. Who are they? Where are they coming from? They, they are Islamic fundamentalists. Um, they were followers and trained by... Um, uh, Various schools of thought, um, wrongly called the modernizing Islamists, who uh, sprang up across the Islamic world, uh, both in Egypt but also in India, uh, in the form of the Taliban, uh, Diobandi school. And the, uh, the Taliban leaders were trained in madrasas, run by, or, you know, their, their teachings all came from Diobandi. A very fundamentalist, very, um, and their leader, um, Madhudi, had had been quite explicit that the restoration of fundamentalist Islam would mean, was totally incompatible with Western values. Um, they still wanted Western technology, and as we've seen, Al-Qaeda uh, and other groups are very sophisticated in their use of social media, computers, and so forth, but that they, they're totally against the underlying science and philosophy that made those devices uh, possible in the first place. So that's the Taliban. Um, the point I wanted to make about pragmatism, uh, you know ma- many people have compared the, f- the f- recent fall, just fall of Afghanistan and fall of Kabul with Saigon at the end in 1975 at the end of the Vietnam War when, you know, the famous image of the last helicopter leaving from the roof of the U.S. Embassy as the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese streamed in and took over. And everything we'd done in the war up to that point, trying to build a, you know, a, a, a freer society in South Vietnam um, collapsed. Um, and that analogy is perfectly right, but there's an deeper analogy I wanna emphasize. Um, Ayn Rand was writing on the subject at the time, and she pointed out, and this is a quote from uh, um, an essay she wrote at the time called The Wreckage of the Consensus. She says, no, there is no proper solution for the war in Vietnam. It is a war we should never have entered. To continue it is senseless, but to withdraw from it would be one more act of appeasement on our long shameful record and boy, that record has gotten longer and more shameful ever since. The uh, – she went on to blame pragmatism, the absence of a coherent set of principles governing the war, why we went into – what our goals were. Uh, we didn't fight to win, uh, as we had in World War II, um, and we – we our, our goals kept changing. Afghanistan has been the same thing. We went in to, to get rid of uh, al Qaeda which we we drove them out and finally killed bin Laden. But along the way, we tried to, you know, building a free society, uh, creating a a democratic society, um, protecting women um, uh, to to achieve, you know, Western levels of knowledge, uh, science, and respect. Um, And I I don't want to diminish the respect, the, 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 What we achieved there on that score in particular, 20 years ago, over the last 20 years, women are now um, going to school, getting doctorates, teaching college, they're in the legislature, um, and that's going to change the equation for the um, uh, Taliban going forward. I don't, I have no idea what will happen, but it's going to be harder for them to impose traditional um, you know um, their traditional values on which di- which diminish women and keep them under control. Um, however, it, it was our goal was pragmatism, and my final point on that—that's um, really uh, part three of what I wanted to say. Um, you know, we—I think we were, we were uh, we were engaged beyond the the. Um, retribution to Al Qaeda in 2001. We were trying to build a nation. I don't. I'm not against n- nation building. Has become a dirty word. I, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. We did a reasonably good job in Germany and Japan after World War II, um, but we had defeated those countries completely. There was there was we wiped out the governments and went in and stayed long enough to create new new governments. Uh, and train people and so forth. We didn't do that in Afghanistan. We just tried to implement democracy, but politically democracy is way down the chain of, of uh, uh, institutions and principles that govern a free society. It's, it's, all, it's the last step. Before you can have a workable democracy, people have to be uh, prepared to accept you know, elections, the outcome of elections. And, you know, so we, in other areas, we've tried this, uh, and the joke has been, or the, the quip has been, uh, one man, one vote, one time. You know, we elect someone like uh, the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and, um, you know, elections are over. So um, for people to accept the outcome of, of elections, they ha- they have to be confident that there is some fundamental framework, a constitution or its equivalent, that protects the system that people operate within that, that there are some basic rights and rules um, that either party or all the parties to an election will respect if they win the election. Um, And that in turn requires um, a principle of the rule of law. And none of that, none of those foundations were present in either in uh, Iraq or in um, Afghanistan. And so we're dealing with a society that remained in many respects tribal, lots of warlords, um, lots of corruption, which we never managed to eliminate. So um, I don't know what the solution is. I'm, I don't have a global vision of what a proper foreign policy would be, but I know that this one was ill-conducted um, and was ill-conducted for philosophical reasons on the part of the U.S. government and its pragmatist uh, outlook. So I'll leave my my comments there.
0: Let me just add something really fast before um, Richard, you take it over. You just reminded me of something because I recently read a book called Nothing to Envy um, about North Korea and people who have escaped from North Korea, great book, if anybody's looking for a book. And one of the um, common threads throughout was everybody interviewed who escaped North Korea wanted to go back and a lot of them did go back because they couldn't handle freedom they were conditioned to um, follow what they were told to do and they never had to make decisions for themselves and it was a very very painful transition and most of the people who did make it to south korea via china usually ended up going back so i just thought that was along the lines with you talking about you know just saying we're going to have democracy it's a lot more
1: complicated
0: than that. Yeah. If I could
1: just respond briefly, Vicky, I think that's a very good point. Um, It was true also of people who escaped from the communist countries came here, including one of Rand's relatives or or maybe her mother or something, and couldn't stand the freedom and number of choices and went back to Russia. Um, Yeah, democracy, an even deeper basis for democracy is a culture of individualism where people are prepared to take, they, where they want the freedom and they're prepared to take responsibility for their lives and their choices. And that's a, you know, that's a deep cultural thing that is very, you know, we're, we're in America and the West more broadly is um, still unique in that respect.
0: Thanks. Richard, what are, you, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, I... Uh philosophically just to make some philosophic points before historical points um, you know in objectivism we, we're, we have to be very careful as we we're very careful about telling students and others is the difference between psychological egoism and ethical egoism so the first says that people are automatically self-interested and we say no it's not automatic you have to learn what your self-interest is you have to learn how to identify it the means for attaining of your values. And I think of the same thing. It sounds very elitist for someone to say, these people aren't ready for liberty because there's a view out there among some which sounds like psychological egoism where they'll say, everybody wants liberty. Everyone wants to be free. It's automatic. That's not true. So I think there's a parallel here, just as ethical ego- egoism is the right view. If people do have to be taught to be civilized, to like civilization, to like civilized things, to to be in the enlightenment. And this is the, one of the great problems, of course, of modern Islam is it's not modern, it's pre-modern still. It's still 17th, it's still 7, 7th century, not 17th century. Um, I remember 20 years ago, I mean, Afghanistan wasn't just a failed state, it was a non-state. It was uh, anarchy. It was like a hiding place, a training ground for uh, Islamic terrorists and the Taliban themselves were financed by Pakistan. who was an enemy of India, India being an ally of the United States. So there's a whole bunch of bad relationships there. They helped build up the Taliban and, uh, Al Qaeda to some degree. And so I, I, I'm with David. I think at the time they should have just gone in for sheer retribution and, and got Al Qaeda and got bin Laden way sooner than they actually did. And if they wanted to beat up a bit on the Taliban, fine. But I don't think they should have ever expected the Taliban to go away because that place is just a breeding ground for uh, medievalism. Uh, So I really didn't like the whole 20-year thing. I thought it was altruistic. I thought it was self-sacrificing. I've jotted down here the idea of you could go in to a place uh, for retribution. You could go in to liberate. Liberate might even be quick. You liberate and then leave but often that doesn't work. So then the next one is occupied. Well, we did. We kind of occupied it for 20 years. And then the last one, nation building. I, I like your point, David. I think also Germany and Japan had intellectual civilized history. And so the nation building idea, I think you're right. You can't just dismiss nation building. It's the context, but certainly here in Afghanistan or even in Iraq or Libya, the nation building, there isn't any uh, foundation uh, philosophically or intellectually for that, is there? So so what are we thinking? What are we doing? The other thing I think of philosophically, um, national interest or foreign policy should be based on self-interest, but nationalized, however you would, how would the like? So what is our national interest? That has to be identified. And if a venture is not in our national interest, we shouldn't do it. So that is a, I, I think in foreign policy, it's called the realist approach versus the idealist approach. You take the facts as they are, but it is also, and here's a word we've heard under Trump, America first. It didn't mean America imperialist. It simply meant we should not be uh, you know, sacrificing or subordinating American interests to the UN or to enemies, don't appease them. That is why actually Trump had a more hands-off foreign policy approach. Trump was very much against the Bush approach of running all over the world. He was very much against the Wilsonian approach of making the world safe for democracy. And mm-hmm. those, the left and the liberals didn't like that. They, they wanted to be in as many wars as the neocons did. So I, I think of it also this way, that we're getting a false choice, the libertarian Ron Paul approach, isolationism pretty much, passivism, almost no reason ever to engage militarily but then the neoconservatives go the other way and they tend to be militaristic, a bit imperialistic, a bit occupation oriented. And then the Democrats are are these idea, well, it's okay to democratize and it's okay to put America second, third, fourth, fifth. They'll actually tout the sacrifice as noble of the troops and the treasure. And I'm really worried about this. I, I said to David offline beforehand, I don't think America's won a war since 1945. Now, I'm not saying it should have been in all these wars, but these are, these are fairly lame enemies. Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. These, this is not Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. These are lame, terrible places, and we never went in there and got the job done. So either we shouldn't have been there, or we should have gone in there and got the job done very quickly. Uh, These things should not take this long, and it really hurts the U.S. reputation, I think. But I'm worried about that. And um, let me, on a positive note, though, I I was thinking about this today. One of the best books on foreign policy, written by an objective, which doesn't get much attention, is is something called Nothing Less Than Victory. So I want to tout that book. It's by the late, great John Lewis. John, I think, wrote this in 2000. Twelve or thirteen, I want to say, about around that time, just before he died, and uh, I think the subtitle was "Lessons from Major Wars," uh, and it's it's a very objectivist account, but it's it's not like a militaristic. Uh, okay. If there's wings of objectivism, some of them are more hawkish than others. John's not a dove, but he's not a hawk either. But he does have this idea: we need to lay down principles of when to go to war and when not, and then how to execute them and come out with honor, you know. Um, yeah. I think something like a withdrawal, I'm not a military guy, but even if the war went badly, I don't know how you can mess up a withdrawal. A, a withdrawal is the kind of a logistical thing it involves planes and protection. I'm appalled at how they couldn't just exit the place in a civil manner. Uh, but to me, it also kind of symbolizes, well, the whole 20 year thing was a, was a wreck. And, yeah. uh, and this exit, I really wish it could have been quieter and below the radar. You don't see people running all over tarmacs and falling off. I mean, it's just outrageous that the Pentagon could not manage the exit in a civilized way, if there's a way, if that's a
1: way to put it. Well, I'm, I'm not sure if it's the Pentagon's, how much it's their fault as opposed to Biden's, because from what I've read, yeah. they were um, warning about this is not going to be easy. Yeah. Um, Right. We've got, to, we've got to get all the Afghan translators out um, in an orderly way instead of just saying we're leaving on this date, August 31st or whatever. And uh, oh, yeah. let's see, well, how are we going to get people out?
2: Yeah. You
1: know, we'll, I, we'll, I'll think about that tomorrow, like that's, O'Hara. your O'Hara. That's
2: the pragmatism, David. Yeah,
1: yeah exactly. Well,
2: I, yeah. I, the other thing I wished is I, uh, someone said today, Well, however messy this is, at least Biden will get credit for ending the war in Afghanistan. And I thought, what a missed opportunity for Trump, because that was basically Trump's view, that we shouldn't be there for 20 years. He He used to say, what, these endless wars. One of the best things he could have done in 2020 was to get out of there. And I'm assuming he would have got us out of there without this craziness. And then he could have taken credit for ending the war in uh, Afghanistan, but they didn't. There's a lot of things the Republicans didn't do when they were in charge.
1: But also, I mean, remember that in February of 2020, he signed um, a deal, uh, treaties, so to speak, with the Taliban, a cockamamie deal between yeah. the U.S. and the Taliban that, yeah. uh, you know, pr- required that we... Pr- let out of jail 500 captured fighters. Yeah. And guess what they did? Yeah. Um, And so on. And so the guy, this was not the art of the deal.
2: (laughs) No. No, no, that's for sure.
0: Well, let me ask you, we did get a question that has a philosophical bent that I would like to hear before we move on to the next uh, the next topic. I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. This is from Gabriel Harrison. Isn't the idea of a national self-interest a collectivist perspective? How is national self-interest different than racial self-interest or other collectivist notions?
2: That's a really good question. I, I think, um... The concept of a nation isn't arbitrary. I hope you, we can start with that at least. If, if nationalism means that the individual is subordinated to the nation or to the state, that's bad. We don't want that. We want individualism. Uh, but when you start thinking of the concept of a nation or a nation state, and then that state having an interest, I, I think that's perfectly fine. Just because we're speaking of a, of a concept, including lots of people, including its leaders, And hierarchy, I don't think it's collectivist to say, uh, you know, what is in the self interest of the United States. Now, you do have to go to core issues, though. You have to say, what is the United States? And if you can define it as a constitutionally limited republic that respects individual rights and its government is obliged to, you know, provide security and safety to its citizens, suppose that was what this entity is, well, its self interest would be in taking on. Uh, enemies, attackers, deciding who are our friends and enemies, you know, what states are our allies versus our enemies. And the United States hasn't been very good at that in the last 50 years. They just haven't. And, and, and whether this is due to internal doubts, which we all can see happening among American institutions. Uh, but again, not to go on too long, but that, that's a really good question. You don't want to just say, whatever my country does, I'm for it. I, I think actually some of the conservatives. Do that. They'll say, you know, that we went into Afghanistan, so we should stay there as long as we stayed in Korea for 50 years. I mean, I've heard conservatives saying that. And that to me is more the idea of my country, right or wrong, my country, I'm going to, like, you know, advocate whatever whatever it wants whimsically. Does that make any sense, David? I don't know if, that, if you disagree.
1: Yeah, no, I don't. Um, I might come at it from a slightly different angle. You know, yeah. when people talk about the public interest, that's a, that's almost always used in a collective sense, because it means uh, the government decides what we're all going to have to sacrifice for, pay for, etc. But there is a valid notion, a very limited valid notion of the public interest. We have one government which protects our rights. We all, it, so what it's doing is serving the rights of all of its citizens by protecting their rights um, and, you know, offering judicial services and so forth. So the in that limited sense, public interest is is valid. It's public because it involves everyone, and because it involves the government. So, from that, you can kind of extend it to if you, if that's your basis for starting, then you can extend it to foreign policy, and say, you know, part of the government's function is to protect our safety in the world at large. And that's a trickier question because it involves identifying what's what's a threat, what's an actionable threat. Um, and so forth. So, but it, it, I still think in this context, national self interest is valid. It does not mean anything the government wants to do. It does not mean imperialism or uh, uh, sacrifice or anything like that.
2: Let, let me add that I think what I, I was asked this last week because we were discussing it at a uh, convention of young libertarian students who leaned in the direction of the Ron Paul strategy. And they and I said, you know what? I actually sympathize with that approach because the last three or four US wars have been so badly managed. <laughs> so in other, in other words, I understand the frustration of people beginning to say we shouldn't do anything because we can't do anything right. I, that, and I'm pretty sure that's that was not the position in the 19 you know, after World War II, there was great, I think, pride about what had been achieved. And even after the vanquishing of the Soviet Union, which was done without violence really. Uh, anyway, I just wanted to throw that in. I didn't want to think, I, I don't want to suggest that the libertarian approach of no involvement anywhere you know, has no plausibility. It's just that the, the track record has been so bad, I think for the US lately.
0: Thank you for that. And before we move on to the next topic, let me just remind everybody, if you have any questions, feel free to type them in the comments section or in the chat section, and we will get to those uh, at the end. So for our second topic, um, last week the Senate passed a trillion dollar infrastructure package, and it also passed the framework of a 3.5 trillion human infrastructure plan. And Richard, should we be concerned about this?
2: I think we should. I think the terminology here is very interesting, and this has been going on for years, right? The the change of the word liberal from true liberty to statism or the change of the word progressive, this goes on and on. And now infrastructure, They, they have pulled infrastructure and however Americans might be upset about government spending and government excess, they like infrastructure. Why? Because they drive on the roads every day and, <laughs> and they get stuck in tunnels and they're running over bridges and they're waiting in lines at the airport uh, and the electrical grid goes down sometimes. So if, you call, if we call that, as I do in economics, we call this in public economics, uh, physical infrastructure. Now, I think even there, government is way too involved, involved in infrastructure. And, and ironically, the Cato Institute has done a study of this. When you think infrastructure, you think, well, how much, how much of it is privately built and owned versus publicly built and owned? Something like two thirds of it is privately built and owned. So that, that might surprise people. And it's some of the better infrastructure. So the, 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 uh, the feeling we get of crumbling roads and, and congestion and bridges and stuff like that is really government failing even in that area to provide for physical infrastructure. But rather than like wasting monies in terrible wars abroad, even a badly built bridge that won't last as long, to most people, it feels like, well, at least there's some physical manifestation of my tax funds. Now, the reason I wanted to stress this uh, topic is because now they've moved to human infrastructure. And so they're using the word infrastructure, which has a good uh, cachet value among Americans, and putting human in front of it. And of course, who can be against humans? So if you got human and infrastructure, <laughs> but really, what it is, and I've looked at it. Now this is going to be not one trillion. The first package, one trillion. I looked at it. It was mostly conventional roads, bridges, ports, and things like that. Most of it, not all of it, and over ten years. So it's not one trillion per year. I think the annual budget now is five trillion. So it is over ten years, and there'll be a lot of waste and boondoggles in that. But at least it's that old-fashioned physical infrastructure but next up is three and a half trillion and they're calling it human infrastructure and it is just redistributionist stuff and i would say it's actually anti-physical infrastructure some of it actually involves tearing down bridges and and tearing up roads and getting rid of them i mean it's it's literally anti-infrastructure but here's what the real purpose is and i've just ticked off some of these categories When they mean human, they mean spending on what they call human capital. It's actually a legitimate phrase in economics. Human capital means things like your skills, your knowledge, uh, what you know at work, uh, your, your connections in business and things like that. So those are real things, but the government here thinks that it's going to invest in that and build up your human capital, but it really is just a laundry list of favorite groups, mostly for the Democrats, but some for Republicans. And much of it, people don't know this, is Green New Deal stuff. So they're not not—they're not really passing the Green New Deal because that has a bad reputation. They're, there's, there's, they're pushing the Green New Deal stuff, which was earlier released into this. And my estimate was is that half of the three and a half trillion is a, a disguised Green New Deal. Now, what does that mean? I mean, it means things like they're literally mandating that buildings be retrofit. They're mandating that monies be spent on quote-unquote renewable energy like solar and wind panel. But here's other examples. Childcare, family leave, free tuition, job trading, quote-unquote quote decarbonizing the power grid, that, that'll lead to blackouts. Retrofitting buildings and buses and trucks, pu- public housing subsidies, Plant uh, land and forest preservation, and, and what they call reverse development preservation products. That that means taking something where there's development and stripping all the development off it and returning it to nature. Uh, climate change research, domestic violence curbing programs. You see how these aren't really—they're not build; they're not bridges, tunnels, and roadways. But they're pitched as well. Who would not invest in these things? What are you inhumane? Inhumane for not wanting family leave, child care. <clears throat> so, I don't know how, Dave, David. You've studied the welfare state and how it expands and how redistribution, uh, you know, can corrupt a country. Th- this is doing this, but under the pretext of infrastructure. So, that's that's pretty much my interpretation of this. It's a very bad trend. I, I'm guessing this thing will get passed, but if so. It's a, it'll, it'll it'll be the beginnings of a total corruption of the word infrastructure, and and I was always sketching on infrastructure before this even even could <laughs> do, but at least I could be a fan of roads, bridges, and tunnels and things like that, that would help us possibly become more productive. Yeah, it, this is just straight redistribution and favors to special groups. Oh, one last thing, bailing out overleveraged Democrat states. I mean, that's part of the quote infrastructure spending to, you know, to help California, Illinois and others, you know, who are uh, who borrowed too much during this. So there it is. Human infrastructure, I think a very bad trend, something to keep an eye on. And, and it isn't a small piece of this thing. It's 70 to 80 percent of it. What's going on now. So that trend was
1: well, very bad. Uh, I mean, and. <clears throat> Uh, if I had more time to, to prepare, I, I would have gone back to my uh, 1988 book, 98 uh, uh, book, rather, uh, A Life on Wood own where I had a, numbers on the, the size of the welfare state at that time. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I take your point, absolutely take your point about infrastructure as, you know, um, a kind of grotesquely false advertising. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. no, no private company would get away with, uh, <laughs> um, and it, it, it's of a piece with the way liberals have redefined every other term that stands for good things like liberty, rights, um, justice, uh, and so forth. But um, it, it, the, when I looked at the bill and, and the elements of it, it, it seemed like it broke down. It was the climate piece, yeah. And then um, in, in tandem with that, but not entirely, you know, for climate purposes, uh, industrial planning, like to build chip factories in the US, so we solve that problem. And other, you know, other things, a, a lot of, you know, green, uh, quote unquote, clean energy um, things. Yes. Yeah. But also, you know, this, you know, we, we already have a public education system. What they want to do in this bill is that two years at the beginning in pre K and two years at the end in free community college free, yeah. I say it paid for it by taxpayers. Right. And, um, you know, what, one of the things that bothers me about this is that it is making more, it's going to make more people dependent on the government. Yeah. And, um, if it if and when it passes um, I'm, I'm beginning to think if is if is as large a question as when um, but in any case uh, it, it will pass in the same way that Obamacare did by a narrow partisan vote in Congress um, recruiting everyone into a new government program uh, that consists as much of regulations as subsidies and you know despite you know, looking back and using Obamacare as a, as a, a model, um, there was huge resistance to it in the form of the Tea Party rallies in the um, early um, uh, early two thousands. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, 2010s, and uh, you know, the Obama law, the Democrats lost the House yeah. in shortly thereafter. But yeah. meanwhile, we still have Obamacare. And people are now so used to it. It's become, there's a vet, huge vested interest. Every time you give people something, uh, transfer money to them, they begin to think of it as a right, an entitlement. Yeah. Technically, it is an entitlement. Um, it's not a right. But uh, then it becomes very, very hard to undo it. And one of the things I also noticed about this bill, um, I was reading something by a group called the uh, the Committee for a, a Responsible Budget. Um, I'm not real familiar with them, but um, they said, "Look, the, the bill, the 3.5 trillion has a lot of gimmicks in it because it's a 10-year bill, and they left open that some of the programs would not last all 10 years. That's how they got the price down to three, three and a half. But if you assume, as this seems quite reasonable, that everything they, every program they pass is going to, you know, be eternal, um, then it's their estimate is about five, five trillion. Five and a half trillion, maybe. Um, so, the vast amount of which is, um, uh, as you say, transfer transfer payments, just yeah. taking money from people who earned it and giving it to those who didn't. Yeah. Uh, and I think my sense is that this is this is a really major expansion of both the welfare state and the industrial policy state. Um, okay.
2: Yes, it's, it's almost a change in kind, David, because of the way they're classifying it, I, I think.
1: Yeah.
2: I, I mean, I did a piece recently on the expansion of the welfare state as a transfer state, crowding out in, uh, traditional infrastructure spending. So I did that study uh, last year, and, but it went over uh, like a 50-year period. And it was remarkable to me because I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wow, p- things that people actually want roads bridges tunnels ports the the government is not spending on those things because they're spending on transfers so much you know and then i thought um well then you see something like this happening and it's almost like government is saying okay we hear you yes we're going to spend more on infrastructure you should be applauding us but like deep down they don't really want to spend it on roads and bridges and things they want to spend it on transfers and uh whatever's left of the American ethic, the American ethic still doesn't like transfers to people who don't work and don't deserve it and or engage in bad behavior and stuff like that, right? So it has to be dressed up as we're investing in human capital. We're building up human capital. Yeah. To me, in in a year, what's well, going on two years now, in a year when the government policy on public health has so destroyed human capital, eroded, contaminated the things they're doing to kids. I mean, or, or I forget, or even two years ago, if we just stood there and say, what have they done to the children's minds in these public schools? I mean, that is the most direct historical experience we have of government <laughs> spending money on human capital. And I, I hate to say it, they've ruined a lot of human capital and wasted a lot of human, yeah. um, an economist here, I, I don't sound very compassionate here, but, but these are human minds, skills, motivations corroded by public education. And this this would not be the kind of entity that you want to see doubling down, tripling down on this quote-unquote investment. That, maybe that's too dark a view of it, but.
1: Well, yeah. Um, I mean, it, it, one small piece of this, for example, um, to your point, there's um, about a fifth of the... Um, the cost will be, will, will be the um, extension of tax credits to families, uh, yeah. uh, the earned income tax credit and so forth. Most yeah. of these programs had work requirements. Yeah. Those are going to be eliminated. No work requirements. Right. I know. I know. So, I mean, this yeah. is, that, that to me is, is um, really revealing of motives. I mean, one of the things that I mentioned in, uh, I remember when I was writing Life of One's Own way back, um, I, was, I, f- I found some philosophers saying that people should have a right to be idle, not to work.
2: Yeah,
1: I remember. Yeah. <laughs> and you're thinking, you know, what, what planet are you living on? Well, no planet, because any planet okay. <laughs> requires, you know, sustenance for life. Um, but this, that's what they're doing. They're saying you can, you know, you can be an idler, your kids can be an idler um the money's yours
2: and you know we know that uh failure failure of these public investments are often used to say well we need more money yes the public schools are crumbling yes the kids don't have uh school supplies even good then we need more money people do not think of it in terms of Oh my gosh! Wait a minute. I think I heard once that socialism failed, and socialism <laughs> is public ownership of the means of production. So maybe this is failing because it's government ownership of the means of instruction. I mean that that's what that's what public schools are. Public ownership of the means of instruction, instructing kids. They're not instructing kids. They're indoctrinating them, and they're making, and they're and they're bringing them into the workforce without the skills necessary to have a productive job. So then they give them checks to stay home. And oh, uh, it's just, uh, I sound like an old fogey complaining about how things
1: have changed.
2: <laughs> uh, and so I'll stop.
1: Well, I'm, I'm probably guilty of the same thing, Richard. <laughs> but still. The
0: um, thing that yeah. I noticed um, going off of what David was saying is this idea of making more people dependent on government. And actually that's not, something i hear people concerned about and using that word dependent um you know even among people that i know who have kids who are in their 20s uh people don't seem to be quite as concerned about being independent and so dependent doesn't have quite as negative of a connotation as it's now i'll be the old fogey as it certainly did when i was growing
1: up (laughs) yeah
0: wanted to be independent but you know and those those checks every month just make people more and more dependent definitely you
1: know i when i was growing up um too i knew a lot i knew of people um who would not take welfare as a matter of pride i don't want to be awarded the state yeah however poor they were and maybe that's that that view persists in in some areas but um you know, there's so much that everyone gets from the governor already between social security. I mean, think of it this way. We're, we're, our, we, the US has been described as a capitalist economy, but retirement is socialized through social security. Education is socialized through the public education system. And essentially medicine is now socialized. Thanks to all, you know, fifty years, uh, but culminating in Obamacare, and and the, this three point five trillion will add to it. Um, so, th- those, educating your kids, planning for retirement, and taking care of your health are three of the biggest tasks any human being has to do. And we, all three of those are socialized, and that, but when people talk about socialism, it, it's like a floating concept. They, they don't know how to apply it to, to real, the reality around us.
2: Well, I mean, one of, the, one of the concepts I deal with with Duke students on some of the material is paternalism, p- political paternalism. So the, the, uh, the nation model as a family. So daddy's in, daddy and mommy are in charge and we citizens are kids. And, you know, we hope they'll take care of us. Yeah, they'll let us go outside and play and maybe we'll skin our knee, take a few risks, start a lemonade stand before it fails. (laughs) But we will get dinner at night and they will tuck us into bed. And I I think it seems like the attitude is so long as these are benevolent parents, we're fine. So long as they don't do Hitler and Mussolini type stuff, we're just fine. As long as there's no domestic violence in the house, we're just fine. You know, <laughs> it's almost like, I think it's you know, is that a model that, but it's not a model of an independent, you know, grown up human being. It, it, it They're large infants walking around wanting to be taken care of. Um, I hope it's not a majority, but it, it does. I, I, I agree with you, Vicki. There's very few people who say, wait, a minute, I'm losing my independence here. God damn it, I'm an American. Uh, it, it, that is, There's less and less of that, I noticed.
0: I noticed. Definitely. Well, let's move on to the third topic. Again, if you have any questions, be sure to type them in the uh, comment section or into the chat here on Zoom. And for the last topic, last September, the CDC placed a federal freeze on evictions in an effort to mitigate the consequences of locking down and the closing of untold numbers of businesses resulting in millions losing their jobs. And then earlier this month, the CDC extended the freeze. And this brings up so many issues that concern me, such as property rights and legislation by bureaucracy, to name a couple. Richard, can, can you give us a little perspective on this?
2: Yeah, I didn't want to spend too much time on this, but I thought the principle, the main thing was the principle of the president. Uh, Biden last week basically saw a Supreme Court decision which said this eviction moratorium is unconstitutional. The CDC cannot do this. We don't need to get into the details of that. But the the key thing to me was Biden said, I don't care. I don't give a damn. Uh, That's, I don't say that's completely new. There's a long history in the US of something called Nullification. Juries can sometimes nullify what a judge says. Uh, so, uh, this idea of every branch of government gets to decide uh, ultimately what's constitutional or not. But the long history also has been of judicial review that the only real power the courts have is to opine on other legislation as being constitutional or not. So, when they say it's not, usually the other branches say, okay, we agree, we're going to have to either change the law. Or something, but I, as president, am here to execute the law. Biden basically said, "I'm not going to execute the law," and just knowingly, brazenly, brazenly saying, um, "I don't care what the Supreme Court said; I'm going to do it anyway." That's autocracy, obviously. That's authoritarian. But I also think there's a, you know, why does this kind of thing happen? No one, no one likes the landlord. No one likes the capitalist. Mm-hmm. No one likes the banker. So, so unfortunately, we're all caught up in this idea of, "Hey, yeah, I can't pay the rent." you know so there's a more term on rent that's is very compassionate and humanitarian of you thank you very much uh, i was actually shocked that the supreme court did say it was unconstitutional because for many many decades they have not really opined on economic regulations and redistribution they've deferred to the yeah. legislature i myself couldn't understand why the cdc did this not even ate not even help the what's it the housing agencies and I looked it up and, and Vicki, you're absolutely right. They, they named some provision in the Public Health Services Act that said they could prevent people from being evicted. And of course they're being evicted because they lost their jobs, right? So they can't pay the rent. So normally you would evict them. And the CDC said you can't evict them because that will spread coronavirus. Incredible. They need to stay home. Yeah, <laughs> they need to stay home, not pay their rent. We will send them a check. They can keep watching Netflix or MSNBC or whatever. And it's just maddening. But this thing has been extended now to October. They're basically going like this to the Supreme Court. It's, it's to me, it's just the rule of lawlessness continues. And uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen here. I, I, I noticed they allocated, I looked up today, $46 billion Congress allocated to pay people's rent. It's huge. And it affects, by the way, this moratorium, now extended out to August three, uh, October three, affects ninety percent of rental properties. By the way, initially they said just because you can't be evicted doesn't mean you're not still owing the rent. Uh, they're moving now toward though you don't have to pay the rent either. That'll be the next. Then that'll be the next step. And I think it goes back to David's point about okay, they may not have planned it this way, but the ultimate result is you depend on the government for your housing as well and your medical needs and your kids' education, and your food, and your, right? And, and now it's housing. So um, not a good thing. We'll see what happens in October. But uh, that's, a, that's a huge thing, I think, especially the precedent of the president saying we yeah. follow what the Supreme Court decided.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, there was, I mean, and he kept saying before he, he made that call, I can't do it. My hands are tied. The, yeah. the courts are ruled against it. Right. And then, you know, I don't know, AOC talked to him or something. They said, okay, I'm going to do it. Yeah. Um, right.
2: And you know, and then they said, Well, you're going to get lawsuits and this and that. And he, well, by then, uh, people will have, you know, got their money. Total fragmentism. Yeah, it wor- it works like until Labor Day. So let's do it. Um
0: Well, that idea of dependence, we actually have another question about the thought that dependence on the government um, seems to be accelerating and is going to lead to even really more authoritarian government. And do either of you know anything about any scholarship on the study of the stages of this sort of a progression and where we might be in this progression? I don't know if either of you know anything about that.
1: Well, you know, this has been something objectivists talk about. Um, I'll just make two points. One is the only um, model I've I've seen of this is the narrative of Atlas Shrugged. Rand, and if you look at her notes, carefully work out what are the stages that a society will go through as um, it collapses, as power expands, becomes more discretionary and so forth. Um, there are a few other novels that, do that, that, that do, do, do that as an imaginative exercise. I think that was short is the best. But there's a more, apart from that, um, just, I have a philosophical problem or epistemological problem with uh, theories, any actual theory that would try to do that. We can, you know, that, that means predicting the politics and economy and culture of a society. Well, we know from von Mises and and Haik, you cannot predict an economy. Uh, you can you can make good guesses, uh, you know, well informed uh, guesses, and a lot of people do that in the financial markets, and some are successful. But um, you know, I don't. I think correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, but I don't think many economists would say I can. I know for sure uh, what the, where the stock market is going to be in thirty days. Um, well, a, a culture and a society, including its economy, are orders of multitude more yeah. complicated. So, the idea of predicting something—I um, think you can name some principles that are that we know can learn from history—but bring that all down into one calculation, I—I I just don't. I don't think that's possible.
2: One thing I have seen, apropos of this question, Vicky. One thing I have seen is sometimes they'll do studies of whether the rulers the regime is getting more brutal than what the people want if that's the way to put it and those things usually end in complete disaster now imagine another case where they've trained people to want this you know through public education and years and years of indoctrination and you could see why as it even though it becomes more authoritarian that doesn't seem to be any widespread revolution against it because the people want this. I think that's actually what's happening in the United States. I think people are gradually being convinced and indoctrinated that it's good that you depend on the government. Yeah, you lose some liberties, and you have to wear a mask, and you can't breathe, and you can't fly in airplanes and eat hamburgers. Anymore. But notice that like, grads are like, okay, 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 whatever, okay. And, um, but are there cases where you keep getting more and more authoritarian and the whole thing doesn't just collapse, it, it collapses, it eventually collapses into complete chaos. And, and uh, Venezuela is actually the best example. There's only 20 years Venezuela went from voting for these people to uh, you know eating their pets. That, that took only 20 years to and now they can't even over- overthrow Madero. You know like but why not? Why can't they march in the streets and get rid of them? Um, because it's a totalitarian country. But they voted for it. It's shameful. You've got to be educated in that way, right? People who would vote for it. The anti-capitalist mentality, they voted for uh, Chavez and Madero. And we're voting for authoritarians as well. They're not as bad as those guys, but that could be in our future.
1: You know, I should add, since I mentioned Atlas, um, there was a book called It Can Happen Here. I, I think that was Hazlitt who wrote that and yeah. it was maybe during the fifties or something in it, it, it within memory of the yeah. communist and Nazi regimes. Yeah. Uh, More economically. Right. Focused. He,
2: he wrote a book I think called a, a time runs back or something like that, where he reversed it and had the book. There was a fiction started with a totalitarian regime and then uh, uh, they, hmm. they deregulated it over time. And, and like, what would have to be deregulated first? And what would have to be done first? And what would you have to argue for the citizens to make them go from infants to independent adult beings? So it was clever. Hazlitt did it in reverse. Instead of speaking of the road to serfdom, in effect, he was saying, let's start with serfdom. How would you get back to liberty? I think What it's
0: called, was the name of that book?
2: I think it's called Time Will Run Back by Hazlitt, The only fiction he ever wrote. It's pretty
1: well. I think it was written in '59. Yeah. I'm, I'm wrong about that. Um, it can happen here Ooh, I guess it wasn't Haslett, but um, it it was. I think during that era also. But I, I now I, I didn't know that that was. Um, a time will run back. I, I got to read that now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'll be doing the same. And I hate to say this, but we're already up at the top of the hour. This always happens. We had a few questions we didn't get to. I apologize I apologize to you that we didn't get to some of those questions. But I do wanna thank both of you uh, for joining us today. And again, I'm Vicki Odino. And if you enjoyed this video or any of our other materials, I would ask that you please consider making a tax-deductible donation at atlassociety.org. And be sure to tune in next week when Antonella Marti will be our guest for the next episode of the Atlas Society Ask. So thanks again, and we'll see everyone soon.
2: Thank you all.